official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Thank you, band. Um, Thank you, Lynn, for sharing. Um, This morning, we're bringing to a close our sermon series, our appropriately lanced three-week sermon series on the Trinity. Next week, we're going to have a service of gratitude, so please come ready to give thanks. Um, When Adam kicked off this series three weeks ago, he said something really profound. He said that creation came out of a conversation. It came out of a conversation between the members of the Trinity. And I, and I want to quote that conversation. Um, Genesis 1.26, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Notice the word us. God is community. This is at the very heart of who God is. And as Adam said, God didn't create us because he needed us to keep him company. He created us to share in this eternal, joy-filled community. So today, what I want us to do is to explore a little bit more of that God community that we call the Trinity and find out what it can teach us about how to relate to God and to others well. And we're going to dive into some scripture, but first, I want us to look at the painting that Ian introduced to us last week as a window into what Scripture scripture teaches about the Trinity. So we're going to take a look at this painting, which is a a 15th century Russian icon by Andrei Rublev, who was a monk and an artist. Um, And just in case you're wondering, I thought that we should start with a little who's who in this painting. So on the left, we have the Father, the first person of the Trinity. In the center, we have Jesus, the Son, the second person, and on the right, the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the colors that they're wearing. This is really important because these colors are symbolically meaningful. Notice, first of all, they're all wearing blue. Blue is the color that represented divinity in Russian uh, art history. But notice the Father's blue on the left. It's kind of hidden, isn't it? You see a little bit showing through because the Father... um, is not someone we can see with our eyes, right? God, God, God's divinity is actually on display to us in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, whose blue is just draping over his shoulder. His, uh, God's glory, the Father's glory is revealed to us in Jesus. The, the other color that Jesus is wearing, you'll notice, is kind of this reddish-brown color, which is symbolic of, of earth, uh, of Jesus' humanity, of the fact that he became the dust of the earth, and inhabited a body just like us. Um, and on the, on the right, we have the Holy Spirit. Who's, what color is the Holy Spirit wearing? Well, he's wearing blue, which tells us we know that he's also God. And then we see green, actually. It might be hard to see in this picture. There's a green, which is a color of new life, the color of new beginnings, of growth. And uh, we know it's the Holy Spirit who inside of us makes us more like Christ. It's through the Holy Spirit's uh, work that we are reborn and that we're made into the image of God. Um, so as a side note, by the way, um, you've been, you might have been noticing the tables that we've set up each week. Um, and, and, and just a shout out to Jen Ayers to, for setting up this table this week, which is just an artistic kind of interpretation of the Trinity um, inspired by the Rublev painting. Um, so one of the things that I want to point out, but it's not my main point today, 
is just the, the picture that this gives us, the picture that the Trinity as well as this painting gives us of diversity. Each member is different. Each member is uh, unique and it inhabits a different role, a unique role. God loves diversity. And when the body of Christ is diverse, it reflects the Trinity. And we pray that God would make our church a place of diversity, where diversity flourishes so that his glory can more fully be on display. But what I want to focus on um, in this painting is the postures of the figures. Take a look at their postures. Take a look in particular at their heads. Would you say that their posture is a posture of dominance or command or control? No, it's a, it's a posture of mutual submission, of deference, of humility. I would even go so far as to say it's a posture of vulnerability. And that's the word that I want us to land on this morning, vulnerability. You have heard God referred to in the scriptures as almighty, and he is. Praise God and amen. God is almighty. But he is also all vulnerable. We worship an all vulnerable God. So before we talk about vulnerability anymore, we need to know what vulnerability really means. What is vulnerability? Vulnerability comes from the Latin word for wound. To be vulnerable, here's my definition, is the willingness to risk pain on the basis of love. Vulnerability is the willingness to risk pain on the basis of love. Now, I think it's really important to make a distinction here between vulnerability and weakness because those two things are often kind of intertwined or thought of as the same thing, but vulnerability is not the same as weakness. I would say vulnerability is actually a form of strength. You see, vulnerability doesn't come easily. It ah, I'll try this again. It requires faith. It requires trust, intentionality. It means putting down our defenses. It means living out of our true selves, and that takes courage. So vulnerability is not weakness. It's a strength. So how do we know that God is all vulnerable? We see a nod to that in this painting, but we also see it in the scriptures. So first of all, Jesus didn't come to earth as a warrior in heavenly armor. How did he come to earth? as a baby. And he didn't just come to earth as a baby, but as a baby subject to the full human condition, born to a young couple in occupied territory under an angry, jealous dictator. Uh, this couple was about to flee their home as refugees. They didn't even have a place to stay on the night that Jesus was born. As we read in the Gospel of Luke, Mary wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there's no lodging available to them. So to put it mildly, Jesus was born into pretty precarious circumstances. So talk about vulnerability. But it's not just Jesus. It's the Father. So track with me here for a second, because to understand the vulnerability of the Father, we need to understand something about the gift of free will. You see, the Father gave us the gift to make our own choices, to have autonomy, to, to have free will. That's the only way we can love, right? Because love isn't love if it's force if it's not given freely and received freely. So free will is the basis for love, but free will also means that God gave us the ability to turn our back on him. And we see that happen over and over in scripture. We see God's people uh, 
choose to ignore Jesus, uh, uh, God instead of to turn toward him. And we see it when Jesus came into the world and was rejected. And uh, John, the gospel writer, says it this way, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So Jesus wasn't just rejected, he was crucified. And you know how when someone that you love is rejected, it, it hurts you as if you were the one rejected? Well, imagine the pain that the father suffered in the rejection and the crucifixion of his dearly beloved son, Jesus. That's a picture of the vulnerability of the father. So the father and the son are both vulnerable. What do you think about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit, I would argue, is also vulnerable. And here's why. Because when we receive Christ, the Spirit comes to dwell in us, which means that the Spirit experiences our joys as well as our sorrows. When we rejoice, the Spirit rejoices. When we weep, the Spirit weeps. And I don't, I wanna, I, I don't miss that. When, when we weep, the Spirit inside us weeps. Paul says that the Spirit prays through us with groans that cannot be expressed in words. So whatever we go through, the Spirit also goes through. Think about marriage. When you commit to love and cherish someone for the rest of your life, you're signing yourself up for a lot of heartache, right? Because whatever your spouse goes through, you're going to go through too. But you do it gladly for love. And that's a picture, I believe, of the Spirit's vulnerability. So God is not just almighty, he's also all vulnerable. And we see that clearly in the Trinity. But what does that mean for us? Well, we were made in the image of God. We were made in the image of a Trinitarian God. We were made uh, to reflect the all, the all vulnerable nature of God as well. I think that that means two things for us. One, it's a willingness to be vulnerable before God for us to be vulnerable before God. And secondly, a willingness to practice vulnerability before others in trusted community. So I want to talk first about vulnerability before God. What does that look like? What does that mean to be vulnerable before God? It simply means this. Vulnerability before God means being honest with ourselves about ourselves before God. Let me say that again. Vulnerability with God means being honest with ourselves about ourselves before God. Only a fool comes to God trying to impress God. God isn't looking for people to impress him. He's looking for people who will trust him. So I want us to look at a picture of vulnerability in the life of Jesus. Vulnerability before God, before the Father. And in many ways, it's the ultimate picture of vulnerability. So we're going we're gonna to read Matthew 26, uh, verses 36 through 39. Let me give you some context. Jesus has just eaten the last supper with his disciples. He's washed their feet as a picture of his love for them. And he's led them up to the Mount of Olives to pray. And here's where we see Jesus being completely vulnerable with God. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but your will. Those last two sentences, I imagine there was a long, long gap between those. I just read them back to back, but I imagine there was a long gap between those two. Luke's account of the same moment in the, in the life of Jesus says that when Jesus was praying, drops of sweat fell to the ground as blood. Now, what do we not see Jesus doing here? We don't see him pretending that he isn't distressed. We don't see him praying to the Father the way he thinks the Father would want him to pray or telling the Father what he thinks the Father would want to hear. We don't see him pull out a phone to distract himself. Just the opposite. We see him bringing his distress to God and being real with God about the circumstance that he's in and how he feels about that circumstance. He's being honest with himself about himself before the Father. And that's vulnerability. And that vulnerability of Jesus in that moment bore tremendous fruit. And I want us to see some of the fruit that that bore. So the first fruit that that bore is consolation, heavenly comfort. God sent angels to minister to Jesus. And Jesus had said earlier in his ministry on the sermon, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What a wonderful promise and blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Notice that it's not those who pretend that everything's okay who will be comforted. It's those who grieve precisely because they know that everything is not okay. And it's to those that this promise is given. The second fruit that comes out of this vulnerability in Jesus' life before the Father um, on, on the Mount of Olives, is a deepened ability to surrender. Vulnerability enabled Jesus to come to the place of yielding to God. I think it's because he said, Father, take this cup from me. That was the bridge that enabled him to get to the place where he could eventually say, but not my will, your will be done. And isn't yielding to God, isn't that what prayer really is about? Coming to a place where we can put down our weapons and our shields and our fists and with open and empty hands yield to God. And that's what Jesus does here. So consolation comes out of Jesus's vulnerability, a heavenly consolation, a deepened ability to surrender to the Father's will. And finally, what comes out of Jesus's vulnerability is strength, a remarkable strength, a remarkable history-changing soul-saving strength. The strength to go to the cross, the strength to suffer the punishment of our sins for the redemption of the world. Where do we see that strength? I think we see it most poignantly in Jesus' quiet and, un, uh, and, and, and settled, undisturbed spirit during those last hours of his life. When he was provoked, Jesus didn't speak. And when he did speak, What kinds of words did he speak? Were they words of rage or revenge or bitterness? No, they were were words of forgiveness. 
words of compassion and words of hope. He forgave his executioners. He spoke hope to the thief dying next to him on the cross. And he showed compassion on those who were grieving for him. So strength came out of Jesus' vulnerability before God. Consolation, a deepened ability to surrender, and a remarkable strength. I want to talk for a few minutes about lament. Because I don't think that we talk about lament in church enough. And we don't do it enough, to be honest. Lament is a particular way of being vulnerable before God. And it is really important in the Christian life. I would say it's actually critical in the Christian life. Why would lament be critical? I believe it's because we live in a broken and fallen world. And we experience the brokenness and the fallenness of our world. And the people we love experience the brokenness and the fallenness in our world in a way that actually demands lament. And you know what? Sometimes we even experience the brokenness and the fallenness of the world in the church. Because the church is made up of broken people. And when that happens, the proper response is lament. I want to define lament for you. Lament is an expression of great sorrow and deep sadness before God. And the before God part is the part that makes this biblical lament. The expression of great sorrow or deep sadness before God. And I want to emphasize here the word expression because lament isn't just a feeling. It's the expression, the articulation of that feeling. And that articulation could actually look like many different things. It could look like words. It could look like tears. It could look like poetry. It could look like dance or music or song. It could look like sharing a story or a memory. I also want to point out here that um, lament isn't just the expression of great sorrow and deep sadness before God, but all the whole constellation of accompanying feelings. That could look like confusion or frustration or regret or doubt or disillusionment or distress or anger. Just in case you didn't get the memo, it's okay to be angry with God. It's okay to be angry with God, but the key to being angry with God is to being angry with God before God, not to walk away from God. Even if your fists are in the air. Because when we come to God with our lament, whatever that lament looks like, he receives it. And this might surprise you to hear, but our lament is not actually a burden to God. It's an offering. Our lament is an offering, and he receives it as a sacrifice. Why does he receive it as a sacrifice? Why is it an offering? Why is it not a burden to God? Because you have chosen to share that with him. And what you choose to share with him, he values. He values everything that you choose to share with him. So if you're in a place of lament this morning, or if you haven't allowed yourself to lament, but you sense that God may be inviting you into lament, I want to let you know that you are in very good company with the Trinity. You are surrounded by the fellowship of the all-vulnerable God. And I want to suggest something that may sound a little odd at first, but I think it's really important to note. 
And that is that vulnerability is necessary to healing. It's a necessary part of healing. We shouldn't plan on skipping over it or skirting around it because when it comes to healing, vulnerability is part of the process. Shutting down isn't going to heal us. Ignoring our pain isn't going to heal us. Working until we burn out, even if it's good kingdom work, that's not going to heal us. In the gospel accounts, Jesus um, heals many people. But those who are healed by Jesus are the ones who are willing to be touched by Jesus. The ones who are healed are the vulnerable ones. So let's um, talk now about vulnerability before others, because that's actually a really important part of the Christian life. And it's also an important thing to get right, right? Because that can be done really poorly. And, and that can be done in a way that's not helpful. It requires discernment. So there's something that I want us, we're going to go back to the passage um, in uh, um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And I've, I want you to notice something here um, about Jesus's relationship, his interaction with the disciples. What do you notice about Jesus's relationship here with the disciples? Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus expresses his sorrows before his disciples, but he doesn't do that with all of them equally. That's important to note. He doesn't do that with all of them equally. Now, it's not that he has favorites. He simply has different relationships with them. And so he takes Peter and James and John aside and he lets them see the depths of his heart because those are the ones that he has chosen to share the depths of his heart with. And you know what he also lets them see? Not just the depths of his heart. He lets, the, he lets them see him pouring out the depths of his heart to the Father. He lets them see his vulnerability before God. I think that people need to see that in us sometimes too. They need to see that we struggle with our faith, that we wrestle with God, that we don't always want to go where he leads us or do what he calls us to do. Can anyone relate? I think it's safe to say that God does not want us uh, or call us to walk around wearing our hearts on our sleeves. That's not vulnerability. That's an unfortunate lack of discernment. You might even call that stupidity. But he does invite us to be honest with ourselves about ourselves in trusted community. And when we do that, that's actually a picture of the Trinity. Did you notice that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John, they don't try to console Jesus. Imagine what that would have sounded like. Hey, Jesus, don't worry. I'm sure everything will be okay. In fact, there's no record that they said anything at all. They're silent but they're present. And that's all we're called to be for one another, is present. We're not called to take on all of each other's problems and fix them all as if we could. We're simply called to be present. There's a book that um, has had a, a, an Im impact on me called The Relational Soul. It's written by two pastors and psychologists. Um, and in it, they say, the greatest gift any of us can give another is a transforming, receptive presence. Why is that? Why is our presence the greatest gift we can give? I think it's because a receptive presence can be transformative. 
I want to share a story with you, a story about vulnerability. It's also a story about um, our dear friend Karen. So when Karen found out um, a few years ago that her cancer had recurred, there was a tremendous amount of pain in her back. She couldn't stand or sit for very long. And so um, she had to lie down. And so um, a few days after her um, diagnosis, she was out of the hospital and she came to our small group. And our small group would sing for the first 20 or 30 minutes of our gathering. Um, And she arrived just after we had started, so we were singing. And so she came in and she couldn't sit down on a chair or a couch, so she actually lied down right in the middle of us. I I loved her boldness. She lied down right in the middle of us. And then she just kind of put her her elbow over her her face, and just sort of laid there as we sang. And then she started weeping. And we kept singing, and she kept weeping. And you could tell that the emotional pain was just absolutely crushing. And we couldn't tell her it was going to be okay. All we could do was bear witness to her pain and to lift her up to God. It was a really holy moment. And I want to let her tell the rest of the story. This is her words from a sermon that she gave. She said, When I got out of the hospital, I went to a Bible study, and I had to lie down on the floor because I could not sit. And the worship song that day was, Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. And as I lay there, the tears just poured out of my eyes like a river, and the back of my hair was soaked in a puddle of tears, And I felt at that moment that his love was failing. I was numb. I was angry. I was broken. As I lay there, one by one, my friends got down and put their hands on me, and they didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. No one said a word. And as I lay there in the stillness, I cried out a silent prayer. And I felt God's comforting presence. And then I felt his whisper, Karen, trust me. I am going to do something magnificent in your life. I left that Bible study full of peace and holding God's promise close to my heart. What a picture of vulnerability before God and before people in trusted community. You know what? God did do something magnificent in Karen's life. So in the remaining short but full years of her life, she placed sixth place in the World Aquathlon Championships in Denmark. She won first place in her age group for the National Aquathlon Championships in Miami. She revised a second edition of her book, Just Three Words. She started another book. She gave sermons. She gave keynote addresses. She gave speeches. She shared her story on national television. And she gave us a glimpse of her hopes and fears in her beautiful blog. She infused countless people, and I mean countless people, with her contagious, faith-filled joy. And at that Bible study that night, Karen taught me, and I think everyone else in that room, something that we will never forget about vulnerability and faith. 
And I believe that it was precisely because of her vulnerability that her faith was so fruitful. So as we close, I want to send you off with three questions to think about. And maybe one of these questions is for you this morning. The first question I have, is God inviting you to be vulnerable with him in a new way? What is on your heart that you haven't taken the time to share with him or to fully share with him? What would it look like for you to take some time, perhaps later today, to be honest with yourself about yourself before God? Secondly, is God calling you to give the gift of soul hospitality? Is he inviting you to be a safe and trusted friend so that another person can be vulnerable, so that they can be known in their grieving, or perhaps just as importantly, known in their joy? Because sharing our joys is vulnerable too. Finally, is God inviting you to reach out in vulnerability to serve another? Maybe vulnerability for you this morning simply looks like greeting somebody who's new or who you haven't met. And that is vulnerability because you don't know how they'll respond. Maybe they'll dismiss you. Maybe they'll take advantage of your willingness to listen and tell you about all of their woes. Or maybe they'll be honored by your gesture and reflect your kindness. You can't control how they will respond. But when you take that risk for love, God's glory is on display. And whether that person realizes it or not, you're giving them a taste of Trinitarian community. May we all taste uh, and be a taste of the eternal, joy-filled community that is the Trinity. Would you stand with me so that we can pray and we'll then close with the doxology. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us a blueprint for community in the Trinity. Thank you for modeling vulnerability for us. You have risked pain and you have suffered much pain for love and we have been the recipients of that love. We've been enriched by that love. Our sins have been paid for by that love, and we are eternally grateful for that love. May you give us the courage to be real with you about what is on our hearts and in our hearts. May you help us always to run to you and never away from you, even if it means running to you with our fists in the air. Would you meet us in our lament? Also, help us to be present to one another, just as Peter, James, and John were present to you in the garden, even without a word. Finally, would you send us forth with a sense of joy, your joy, your sustaining joy, the joy for which you ran the race, the joy that our sister Karen is now experiencing. Would you send us forth with a taste of that joy? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.